Today, we continue our, our, our series on church as, and we're looking at these, these metaphors that the book of Ephesians gives for what church is. And we're trying to learn about church through these four metaphors. And so far, we've seen that the church's job is to declare the mightiness, the greatness of God, His infinite wisdom and His perfection in every decision. We've seen that the church is a temple, and we are God's presence on this earth. And we have also seen that church is a bride, the bride of Christ. And, it, and we talked about how much God loves us and what that means and how radiant we should be and how we should be striving for purity so that we can be spotless when Jesus returns to take us home into heaven. And uh, today we're going to look at another metaphor. Uh, but before we get to that, there's this modern kind of movement, scholars, people that write books, and it's this topic of tribes, and maybe you've seen some of the bestseller books, and it's a topic that I was kind of, I got onto a couple of years ago, and it, it drives some of what we do at this church. The reason I'm so social on social media is because of this book called Tribes by Seth Godin, and a couple of days ago, I was at Starbucks, and I was having a conversation uh, with a guy, an acquaintance of mine down there that uh, is a non-church goer, but a guy that I really like talking to. We talk symphony music, we share books, uh, things like that, and we started talking about tribes. He had no idea what I was preaching about, but we started talking about this. And let me just give you my definition of a, a tribe. A tribe is a group of people who come together based on a cause or a certain belief. And, and together, kind of the concept is, they can achieve far more than they could achieve without each other. One of the clearest pictures of a tribe around the world is the family unit. And the family is, is one of the greatest tribes because you come together, you are together from the time of your birth and, and centered around something greater than you. That's biology, right? And you work together and strive together in, in your life to, to help each other grow and become, you know, something greater than you could be alone. Not always do families function that way, but that's kind of what families are supposed to do. And uh, we were talking about this, and, and you know, I've thought about my family and what a great family I have, and uh, how how I have so many family members that would die for me, that would call me out if things were difficult, that would be there to help me uh, if I needed help, that would supply supply support via money or or uh, listening or whatever it might be for me, and, and whenever I needed it. And Jerry and I were talking about this, and uh, we kind of got into the idea and the topic of how America has lost some of that familial uh, culture. And, and the family structure, the tribe that is family, is no longer important to us. And so you see things like uh, when older people get old, then the, the grandkids just kind of like, well, they're old, and, and I, I'm not going to hang out with them because I don't like them. I'm going to go hang out with kids my own age. And, and we're talking about all this, and Jerry just said this, uh, kind of in the midst of this conversation. He said, I wonder if our lack of understanding in this area is going to be the downfall of our society. You see, we need groups of people. We need the family in order to live the lives that God wants us to and, and lives that are going to be good and beneficial. And, and here's the thing that we're going to see today. The Bible declares that church is a family. And, and my answer to Jerry's question, not on the spot because that wasn't the conversation at all, but as I process the next couple of days, is this. The, the biological family structure and whether that continues to go downhill is not going to be as detrimental to our society 
is if the concept of church as a family continues to deteriorate in our country. That will be the downfall of, of our civilization here in our country. That will be the downfall of our culture. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says. Therefore, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Now this idea of circumcision goes back a long ways for the Jewish people, because God made a promise to a guy named Abraham thousands of years before we read the book of Ephesians. And Abraham was this old guy, almost a 100 years old. His wife was almost a 100 years old. Didn't have any children. And God says to him, Hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And, and, and in Genesis 17, 9-14, here's the story. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now this is a big deal for the Jewish people. The sign of circumcision is really a sign that you are part of a single family. And that family all has its heritage from a single individual named Abraham. Now, you could be bought in or stolen in if they had raided your country. But for the most part, the the Jewish people saw being part of God as being part of this family, which was symbolized through the act of circumcision when you were eight days old. And this continues right up to the time of Jesus and into the time that the book of Ephesians was written. Abraham's importance throughout history cannot really be overstated. It's different than any of our forefathers. They looked at this guy as literally the grandfather of every person who was Jewish. Uh, There were 12 kids who were grandkids of Abraham. And these were split up into the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the time of Jesus, in the book of Ephesians, the Jewish people still looked at themselves based on the tribe that they were in. The stereotypes were from their tribes. What they had as far as land was based on their tribes. What they believed about their job in life and in society was all based on these tribes. And so the Jewish people looked at Gentile people, and they said, well, you have nothing because you're not part of this family. Listen to John 8, 39 through 41. It's this exchange between Jesus and some Jewish people. It says this, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Here's what they say. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. You see, these people look at Jesus and say, 
It doesn't matter what you're saying about our disobedience, the fact that we're trying to kill you and you're claiming to be the Messiah. That's unimportant. What is important is that we are in the bloodline, the lineage of a man named Abraham who was God's person, who God made a promise with that he would be the father of his people forevermore. And here in our passage, what Paul is saying to non-Jewish people is simply this. Even though you are not part of that bloodline, through Jesus, you have now been brought into the family of God. Ephesians 2, 13 through 19. Listen to the rest of this passage that we're looking at today. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. But setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Do you notice the language here? Do you notice the emphasis I mean, he talks about Jesus, and that's always very important. But the emphasis here is on the fact that there were two groups, there were two humanities, and now they have become one. They have become a family. For example, he says that they have been brought near to God, the Gentiles, through the blood of Jesus. He says that the two have been made one. He says that the barrier was destroyed. Now, this is an interesting one to me because uh, as soon as I read it, I started thinking about the Berlin Wall. Who knows what the Berlin Wall is? If I get a majority, I won't explain it. Okay, good. The Berlin Wall had a separation in the middle between the two sides, West and East Germany. And and when I read this, I started doing research on the Berlin Wall and I like history. And so it led down this rabbit trail, quite literally, because uh, I found out that in the middle of the two cities, countries, whatever you want to call them, was this open area where rabbits began to flourish. They actually call them the Berlin bunnies. And so these Berlin bunnies, just as bunnies will do, they kept populating this center area. And and the way it was described on the Internet was that it was like the greatest place for a bunny. They sat there, they saw some really horrific things, but what do they know? They're bunnies. And so they're just hanging out, having this great life. And when the wall went down, people were so excited to see their family members who were on the other side, that most of the bunnies got trampled and killed. I don't tell you that to depress you. I tell you that because it shows the importance of family and I think illustrates the type of mentality that Paul wants us to have in the book of Ephesians when he writes this. He's saying, now the wall has been torn down, and so you, Jews and Gentiles, are all part of one group, the family of God. That should excite us. That should make us run to each other. He also says that the same peace has been preached to all. He also says that we all have access to the Father. And this is the part that brings us to connection. At the very end there, he uses the word household. And I talked about household last week, and I said that that the word household references those in the same house, and how I thought contextually it was a reference to us being the presence of God on the earth. But as I studied again this week, I think that there may be a double meaning there. Because I think that Paul is saying also 
that we are all part of the same family. Listen to how he uses the word elsewhere. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul seems to use this word as the church being a family. 1 Corinthians 1.16, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Basically saying, I baptized Stephanus' family. And in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, he must manage, talking about pastors, he must manage his own family well, that's the same word, and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a matter worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And so, Paul seems to say, throughout his writings, that the church is a family. Now, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, you really start to see this theme kind of emerge. And I want to read you this passage, this story that is so important for our understanding of church and, and how we view family versus church family. Listen to this interaction in Matthew twelve forty six through 50. While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is fascinating about that passage is that Jesus seems to do something that that we still haven't grasped a hold of in our society today. Jesus seems to put the church family, the family of believers internationally, above the family that is biological. He seems to say that the church and our connection to it is even more important than our connection to people that share the same blood as we do. Now think about this. This is 2,000 years ago. This is Jesus who we claim to love and serve and all of that. But yet it seems that that has, has not transferred into our lives, that we have not grasped a hold of that. I'll just ask this question. It could be hypothetical for some of you. But, it, but if you were going to choose people to be the, the caretakers of your children when you die, ask yourself this question. Would you pick somebody that is biologically your family? Or, if it's a difference, would you pick somebody that is part of the church family? And I would guess that the majority of people, even people who claim to be Christians, would say, well, I'd pick somebody that's part of my biological family. But this just diminishes what Jesus has said to us. It basically ignores it and says, well, Jesus, I don't care that you say that your disciples, the followers of you, the people that that accept you as your Savior, that is the real family, the more important family. I don't care about that. Because these people share my same blood. Now, throughout Scripture, we see the importance of the biological family too. Just So don't say, well, I don't have to take care of my own anymore. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus says, pretty clearly, he almost puts down his own biological family in this sentence. He basically says, look, the most important family is not the family you share blood with. The most important family is the family that you share Jesus with. It's the family of believers. Now, this transfers to so many things that, that is talked about. John 1, 12 and 13. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
The reason that we are part of the family of God is because when we accept Jesus as our Savior, when we look at the cross and we say, well, there was this guy named Jesus, he came from heaven, he came down here because we were sinners, and he lived a sinless life, and then he died for the sins of humanity as God in human form. When we believe that and we take a hold of that, then we become God's children. An amazing, profound, important thing for us. And that makes each of us brothers and sisters, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We are, as we like to say in Christian circles, born again when we become Christians. And we are born again, not into some biological family, but into the family of God. This happens and is described in terms of adoption in, in Paul's writings, Romans eight fourteen through 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And to Him and by Him, excuse me, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. You see, Paul says, look, when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, then you are adopted by God. And he writes this in the book of Romans. And Roman people, if you're not aware of this, when they adopted somebody, that person became just as a biological child. There was no difference, no separation. The rights were exactly the same. And Paul uses this metaphor to show us some of the great benefits of having been brought into relationship with God where he is our father and a relationship with other people in the family of God. He says that we are no longer slaves to sin and death. You see, before you come into the family of God, you are a slave. You may not know it, you may not recognize it, but you are unable to not sin. And you are destined for an eternity of death, eternal death, as the Bible describes it in a place called hell. He says here that we don't need to fear God anymore. And the implication is that before we come into the family of God, we should, we ought to fear God because we are unholy and unrighteous. We are sinners. And God is a perfect, all-powerful being. It says here that we can have a close relationship with God. That we can look at Him and we can cry out, Abba, Daddy. It's a term of love and affection that we would offer to our dads when we are young children. And, and here Paul says, when we are adopted, when we come into the family of God, then we are able to have that type of relationship with our Father in Heaven. It says that we are heirs. That's a big deal. We have something to look forward to if we are in the family of God that before we did not have to look forward to. And we know that as a place called heaven where we have eternal life and things will be perfect and wonderful and awesome beyond anything that we can really imagine on this earth, but yet beautiful in a way that we can't imagine. And he says here that while Jesus is our Savior and King, that he also becomes our brother, our co-heir when we come into the family of God. Hebrews 2.11 says this, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That's crazy. I mean, God who came down to earth to save us, he says, he's not, it says here that he's not ashamed to call you and I brothers and sisters. And so Jesus, while being king and lord and savior of this family, is also our brother, our friend, the guy who likes hanging out with us and being with us. This idea and this concept has far-reaching implications. It's important for us to think about and to understand. It's easy to go, sure, I'm part of the family of God. But the Bible shows us, 
And I think logic shows us that there are some serious things that we need to probably do differently because of the language the Bible uses to describe church, church as family. Listen to Galatians 6, 1 through 10. This is what it says. Brothers and sisters, it's a family term, right? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So let me go back and point out some things about family that Paul says in the book of Galatians. First of all, he says that family should, should work to restore people who are in sin. And we know this, right? I mean, we understand that families want to see their people live the best possible lives that they can live. If you've ever had a family member who has a, a struggle with any type of addiction, you don't sit around and go, well, that sucks for them. I hope it works out in the long run, right? You do your absolute best to help that person get restored, to be a person who can contribute to the family, to be a person that is healthy and happy and living a life that is beneficial for them and for other people, right? And Paul here says that when you're part of the family of God, then that should take place within the church, that you should be striving to help people who are living lives that really are falling short of what they want and what God wants for them. You should help them to live the life that God has called them to. We also see here that we should carry each other's burdens. We know that families help each other in struggles, right? I mean, if you've been part of any type of good family at all, then you know that when you're down on your luck and things are bad, then family is there to support you and to uplift you and to take care of you and to help you and to do whatever they need to do in order to make your life okay and better. Paul says that here. He says you need to help carry each other's burdens. I think this is just missed in the church today. It's like, well, I'll show up with you and I'll hang out with you. And sometimes, like, I'll let you help carry my burdens. But, but Paul is saying, when you're part of the family of God, then you need to be a person who helps carries other people's burdens in this family. It also says here that we should carry our own load. Families work best when everyone participates or helps serves, right? I mean, we know that. I mean, kids have chores and everybody needs to do something. My wife complains because I don't do the dishes enough, right? And that she's right in complaining about that. I'm not faulting her. She's right. Why? Because I'm not carrying my load. I'm creating dishes for somebody else. And the truth is, in church, everybody should be carrying their own load. And there's too many people who sit around and go, well, you carry my load and you take care of all the stuff at church and I'll just be here and show up and hang out and do my thing. But Paul says here that we should each do our best to take care of the stuff we need to take care of. And we should contribute to church. I heard Mark Driscoll say a while back the difference between a, a family and a restaurant is that in a, in a family you have to do something and in a restaurant somebody else does everything for you. 
And I would hope that you're not treating our family, the church, as a restaurant. It says here that we should share with others. Paul says that. That we should be people who share. We should share our love and our devotion. We should share our finances. We should share our encouragement with others. We should share our lives with others. We should share food with others. We, if we're going to be a family like the Bible describes, need to be sharing with one another. Just ask, when's the last time you shared with somebody in the church? It's the last time you just shared with a Christian because they were part of your family. And then he says here that we need to do good to each other. Families ought to treat each other well and we ought to be there to benefit one another and we ought to take care of each other and we ought to show each other love and encouragement. We ought to just say, hey, I'm here for you no matter what I want to see you succeed. Now, here's the thing that you need to remember. Some of you have families that have been terrible. You have families that are no good and you say, well, I don't want to be a part of anything that's like that. I mean, they were abusive or they were vindictive or, you know, they just talked about each other all the time or everybody had an addiction problem. So I don't know what you're talking about. One person having an addiction problem. And some of you are thinking like, this is, this is, I don't get it. I mean, church is family. That doesn't make any sense to me. And here's, here's the thing that you need to remember. Just because you've seen a failed version of something, it does not diminish what is good about that thing. You know what I mean? I mean, here's, here's the thing. Uh, I, I like sports, and I've seen lots of bad sport teams, right? Like, I watched, uh, I watched my cousin Elijah play. They're eight-year-olds playing baseball. And maybe if a person went out there for the first time, they said, this is what a baseball team's like, then they, then they would never think that baseball teams could be, you know, at a professional level, right? And maybe you've had, like, a family that functions like a bunch of eight-year-olds running around, and there's lots of errors, and there's lots of problems. But don't... Don't at all go, well, that's what God means when he describes church as a family. Instead say, well, what does the best version of that look like? I mean, what's the perfect version? Because that's what God wants in the family that is church. It all sums up in one, one word, really. 1 John four nineteen through 21 says it. We love because he first loves us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Love is absolutely paramount. When you think about this as a family and you look at the head of this family who is Jesus and you say, wow, what did love mean to you? Love for Jesus meant coming down from heaven. Perfect place. Everything was good. It meant coming down from there in order to save you from your sins. It meant that he literally came out of perfection into the garbage that sometimes the world can be and then sacrificed and died a very painful physical death, but the worst spiritual and emotional death that has ever, ever, ever taken place on the earth. He did that for you. And so when he describes love in First John, he isn't talking about just, you know, I kind of feel good about them. He's talking about a real love that sacrifices, cares about, does whatever it takes to uplift, provide, and help. He's talking about a love that's demonstrated in families. Now, I want to make just quickly a few observations based on what I've just said to you and kind of those a lot of passages I just read to you. And I just want to make some observations. You can take them for what they are worth um, because these are these are my thoughts and my ideas based on this. And so this is Chad's logic. If you hate it, whatever, but I but I think I'm right, or else I wouldn't be saying it. First of all, church hopping doesn't make any sense. I mean, I believe that the family of God is like a real family, and a, a local church is, in some ways, your immediate family. 
And, and to say that you're going to go from one immediate family to another is just an unhealthy thing. Because I, I look around and I've, I've, I've seen this in my own family at times and I've seen it in other people's families. There's, there's times when people go live with their grandparents or their aunts and uncles and their cousins. And usually, almost every time, that does not come from a healthy situation. Sometimes the parents are bad. Sometimes the kid is having problems and acting out and, and just isn't functioning very well and the parents don't know what to do and so they send them off to their grandparents or the cousins or whatever. And so you've seen this situation and almost always it comes from a place of unhealthiness. But yet it seems in our current culture today when people go from one church to another they just dismiss it like it's no big deal. Well, I didn't like them. I didn't like this one thing they did. Families are messy. I mean, families are full of things that we don't like. And yet, if you're a normal human being, you don't go, well, sorry. I mean, I'm going to go find a new family. I'm going to go find somebody else to hang out with. I'm just, you know, dad and mom, um, have a nice life because my cousins, they don't do that one thing that I don't like. They don't make me do my chores. They don't, you know, convict me when I, when I, when I do something wrong. I mean, and so I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to be part of a new immediate family. That is stupid. If really the church is a family, and Paul is looking at this local church in Ephesus, and he's saying, hey, you guys, you're a family, you need to love each other, you need to take care of each other, you need to be there for each other. It makes no sense for somebody to go, well, I don't like that one thing, so I'm going to go to the family down the road. There are reasons to go to the family down the road. Sometimes churches need to send people in their family down to the cousins so that they can work on the farm or whatever it might be. Uh, that was a little old-fashioned of me, but, you know, go to, at the coffee shop on the property or whatever it might be. Uh, but, but most of the time, it, it makes no sense to leave one family to go to another family. And the truth is, what you'll find in every family is that they're messy and they're full of people you don't really like and you don't want to hang out with. And, and they're full of people who aren't pulling their weight, who aren't carrying their load. And they're full of people who are difficult and it's full of conflict and it's full of kind of this mess. And, and sometimes Thanksgiving dinner can be a little awkward because people are showing up and you're not really sure what to expect and who's you know angry at who and things like that. And that's what a family is. But yet we're part of them and we care about them. We, we stay in them and we do our best to make them work for the good of everybody. Started watching Arrested Development. And the story is one of this dysfunctional family who was rich and then all of a sudden uh, they get caught kind of an Enron situation for doing some dirty stuff. And, uh, and, and the family starts to fall apart and they have no money. And the main character in the story is this guy who simply says... He's the only normal guy in the whole show who says, my family is too important, and so I'm not going to take this other job. I'm going to do my best here in the midst of this dysfunction to do what needs to happen so that this family can stay together and be what it should be, what it once was. Just pick up and leave doesn't make sense. And the truth is, I don't even think it makes sense to people who don't call themselves Christians to go from one family to another. We always know that that's not the best thing. It's not, the, it's not the right thing. It's not the healthy thing. Sometimes it needs to happen. Hopefully someday we'll send one of our young men to pastor another church to be the head of another family. But for the most part, it means that we need to be here and deal with the mess and the dysfunction. We need to do our best to make it work. Thankful that we have a good family here. I like being a part of it. But we're going to grow and we are growing and someday it's going to get messier and messier and messier. And my hope is that you'll think back and say, wow, this is my family. 
doesn't matter how many people show up and what I think about them. This is my family. Here's another one. This idea of segregation between ages just doesn't make sense. And you know, if you've been reading my blogs, then you probably think, well, he's talking about in the service, and that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about this idea that we just don't interact with different demographics makes absolutely zero sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Church plants, this is what you do. In a church plant, you get a bunch of people, your same age, usually like early 20s together, and you just build a church based on that age group, and you can play the music as loud as you want, and you can do it the way you want to do it, and your logo can be a little bit cooler, and, and you, can just, you can just be hip and happening, and the jeans can be tighter, and nobody's going to complain, uh, right? I mean, and that's what happens in these, in these, these church plants. It's like, well, okay, the old people are getting in our way, and so we'll just not deal with them anymore. We'll go over here across the road and we'll plant this new thing and the young people will become because it's all young people. And that's fine. And that's dandy. No, it's not. It's terrible. It's stupid. I'm sorry. It's just ridiculous. It's a ridiculous model that we have, that we have made the model in the American church planning world today. That's what, we, that's what we've done. And if it's a family, then that makes no sense. I mean, you're going to have grandparents that complain about the music being too loud. I've grown up with that. That's fine, right? You're going to have young people who aren't pulling their weight and the old people are having to pick up the slack because these youngsters are just irresponsible and they haven't learned a good work ethic yet. I mean, when in my day it was uphill to school both ways and these kids are not doing anything, right? And that's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that you just dismiss them. It doesn't mean that you start a new church. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't give leadership to the young people. And it doesn't mean that we should just try to deal with the old people. It means that we should love each other and take care of each other and be there for each other and try to hear each other out and understand that grandma and grandpa sometimes get a little cranky. And, and the grandma and grandpa need to understand that us kids, sometimes we're not as responsible as we should be because we're still trying to figure it out. But we got a lot of energy and we want to see this church succeed just like you do. I mean, if this is a family, if this is our immediate family, then how dare we just think, well, if they would just get out of our way. I mean, if they just weren't here, then we could just do this better. It makes absolutely no sense. And what we find just in in the world today is that you see this lack of maturity on the part of so many Christians. I think it's got to be connected. I mean, if you don't have parents and grandparents teaching the kids what they ought to do and how they ought to live their lives, then, then what's going to happen to those kids when they're the parents and the grandparents? They're not going to know what to teach their kids. They'll be trying to hang on. Their kids will go to another church and will get further and further away from the maturity and the growth and the godliness that God has called his church to be about. We cannot, we cannot just segregate and say, well, we're going to plant this church demographically because that's what the marketing books say to do, and that will be our fastest track to growth, which it will be. It will be the fastest track to growth, I guarantee it. But it is not the healthiest track for church, and it does not work in the long run, and we're seeing that in our country. So this is the question that I just just want to ask you this. Are you treating church, I think there's three ways, are you treating church like a restaurant where you just go to get served? You go to the next one if you don't like it, you never show up again? Are you treating church like a movie where you just go to get entertained 
to kind of hang out and have a good time, but you don't really feel connected. You don't have to do anything for the workers. I mean, they give you the popcorn and that's about it. Or are you treating church like a family? Are you diving into the messiness and hanging on for the long haul saying, you are my people? You are my people. Here's the thing. I look at the family that I've had, and I'll look back over the years. I'm sure there's times when there's like, oh, come on, you're doing this and you're doing that. But, but I'll look back at the history of the people that I've been the closest to, my biological family, and we've been through times where we're angry at each other. We've been t- through times where, where each of us have, have messed up and done stupid stuff. We've been through times that are hard and and People in our family, I'm sure, wanted to quit and say, we can just move on. And we've been through the loss of loved ones together. And we've been through all this stuff together. And, and, and I'm here today, and I'm such a better person because I had them. I'm just far beyond what I would have been if I was void of that family. And church needs to be the same. We need to just hang on. Say, sometimes it'll hurt. Sometimes it'll be messy. Sometimes it'll be great, and we'll talk about it for years. Sometimes I'm not going to want to be here for those people, but I'm going to anyway, because this is the most important family, my immediate family in the context of my faith in Jesus. We need to live that out to its fullest and maximum potential. If we will do that, then we will be a church that glorifies God, and that he will want to be in, and who will be excited to come back and take us as his bride, and who will declare to the dark forces that our God always makes the right decision. Lord, I thank you for this family, God. I mean, I love my biological family, but I I just love having more family, God. Uh, And Lord, I thank you for this, this church, my immediate family here, Creekside, Lord, and you've You've blessed me tremendously, God. And uh, you know that, I mean, God, I got here when I was 21 and, and I've grown up here and, and they've been good to me and kind to me and they've taken care of me, Lord. And, and I just am so thankful for that. God, I pray that we would be a church where the family mindset and attitude is demonstrated and, and where the world could see this love that we have for each other, not where where it's like, well, we got mad at each other and so we split up and we broke up and now we're, we're two families. But Lord, a love that, that shows that even when it's messy and difficult and, and, and it hurts God and, and things are tough, that we just love each other through it. And, and we don't just talk about loving each other, but we actually love each other. And we always want the best for each other no matter what. And I, I pray, God, that our church could be a picture of family for families. So that people can look at what we do here at Creekside and, and the way that we interact with each other and they can know what a good family looks like. And I, I see the deterioration of the family structure in our culture, God. And some people want it back, Lord, but they don't really know what it looks like. And, and they've grown up in, in families where if somebody gets mad at you, then you don't talk to them for a really long time or maybe ever again. And families where, where grudges are held, Lord. And I pray we would we would show them what a, a good real loving family looks like a family god when somebody does something wrong against somebody else that they don't even need to say they're sorry because forgiveness has already been granted lord and because they know that the other person understands who they are a fallen sinner who's just simply doing their best to be a good part of this family your family lord god i pray that 
the American church, churches everywhere, our cousins, God, around the world today even, would, would cling to each other, God. And they would love each other more, Lord. I don't want it just to be this family that thrives and grows and enjoys each other and, and is there for each other. But I want to see, God, the American family and the world family, our cousins everywhere, cling together, love each other more, show the world what church is supposed to be. Not this dismissive mess of one church to another, demographically planted churches, God. Not this, this idea that we'll just split if we have a problem with each other, but a family that sticks together no matter how hard it is, Lord. Lord, I trust that as we do that and we're obedient to you, then you will move in our midst and you'll bring more people into our family. We will see more people born again, Lord, into this family, your family, adopted as your sons and daughters, Lord, ready to glorify you with their new brothers and sisters. Pray these things in your name. Amen.